Okay, well, guys, I'll tell you what, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to be walking through John chapter 10. We're going to take about 11 verses, or 12 verses, I guess it is, verses 22 through 33 in John 10. We'll read it here in a second, but before we do, I wanted to, I want to kind of give you a little preface, all right? So, what... What I've got up here on their first slide this morning for John 10, 22 through 33, it's going to be just a, a little bit more discussion of the good shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? You know, obviously this is, it's revealed in this passage, like Jesus is presenting himself to us as the good shepherd. But this good shepherd concept, this shepherd of the sheep is something that's been, it, we find this throughout the word of God. Okay, one thing I want to, I want to kind of let you know, like there's this history of shepherding within the Jewish people, all right? In the Israelite people, there's a long history of shepherds. The very beginning when, when Joseph, when Joseph goes to Egypt, you know, he's sold into slavery, put into prison, and eventually, because of his interpretation of one of Pharaoh's dreams, he is exalted into the second highest place in all the nation of Egypt. He becomes like a step below royalty. And if you know the story, is the reason he was in slavery in the first place because his brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy. And he'd had a dream saying, one day you're going to bow to me. And sure enough, his dream comes true. And later on, his brothers come and they bow before him. They don't realize it's their brother. They don't realize it's Joseph. But they're dying of famine. And they need help. And God works this whole story and orchestrates it to where there's this grand reunion. And we get to see a beautiful demonstration of grace through the life of Joseph to his brothers and family, but really an even more beautiful testimony of grace of God protecting and preserving his people. And we see at the end of that story in Genesis 50, as more says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he works it for good. And when his brothers come and they stand before him, the Pharaoh ends up asking, hey, what do you guys do? And they say, we're shepherds. We keep flocks. That's who we are. That's what we do. And so they, they get to continue keeping flocks. But because of, because of this divide between the Jewish and the Egyptian people, suddenly that becomes this point of contention. And slowly you see throughout the story of Scripture, shepherds start to have a more and more negative connotation to them. Until finally we see this man who's a, a shepherd. He's a boy, really. He's the youngest of eight brothers. Look down on, brothers mistreat him all the time, and he gets the worst of the worst jobs. He's a shepherd. And he sits out with nasty, smelly sheep all day long. And God takes that occupation, this occupation that was despised by everybody in this culture, and he takes him from there and he elevates him to be the king, King David, the man who goes straight from the shepherd's field to the battlefield where he defeats Goliath. And we see this story of shepherding continue into a man named Amos, who's a prophet of God, until finally you get to the first century, which is where Jesus shows up on the scene, and he is born. And when he's born, God does something really unique. He sends his angels to herald to tell them, hey, there's been, there's been a king born. And he's not going to look like anything you'd expect. And the first people that he appears to to tell them that this king has been born are shepherds. Now, for us, we see that and we think, oh, that's beautiful. Shepherds, there's all this history within the Jewish faith. There's David as a good shepherd. We see God even refer to himself as a shepherd of his flock Israel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. We see this throughout in the book of Psalms. 
But guys, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, and by the time the Messiah is born in a stable in Bethlehem, and by the time those shepherds come to let to celebrate the coming of their Messiah, being a shepherd is so looked down upon that they couldn't even speak up in court. When the shepherds would have gone back into the cities and said, you won't believe what we saw, nobody would have believed them because they were shepherds. If you committed a crime, if you committed a murder and the only person that saw it was a shepherd, you got off scot-free because they weren't allowed to testify in court. We hear the word shepherd, we think David, we think Jesus, the good shepherd. But guys, when we're talking about a shepherd here, when John's writing about a shepherd, this is a despised and looked down on occupation. And in the first century, there's some other things that we need to know about shepherds. So for us, I know when I think of a shepherd, what, what do y'all think of? When you, when you see an image of a shepherd, just throw some things out. And I really need, I'm going to give lots of participation points this morning. You want to make sure to, staff, okay. You see a staff. What's it look like? You got like, uh, yeah, yeah, with a little curve and the crook. That's right. Yeah, we got, a, we got an in-house shepherd right back here, Mr. Jacob Howe. Woo, yeah, master of all things shepherding. All right. So we got the staff, like a little crook. What else? What else do you think of? What do you see? Huh? What was it? Beer? Oh, a beard. I missed the D. I missed the D. I was like, I don't wanna I don't wanna pass over it. I'm sure he has a great point. All right, no, beard. That's right, like a big old long beard, unkept, probably junk growing in there. Yeah, what else? What else do you think? What was it? A rod. The rod and the staff. That's right. From Psalm 23, and we're going to talk about what that means and why those things are different from one another. What else? What do you see around them? So there's obviously sheep around. What are the sheep in? Pastures. That's right. We see rolling fields. It's like that, that one little pocket of Israel where it's almost like Ireland, and there's lots of green grass. Wait a second. Now, this is something that I noticed when I thought of a shepherd. I thought of this, this really happy guy with a staff. And these rolling green fields and the sheep all fenced in. And the more I studied and I read about what a shepherd was and what we're talking about today, and the reason, there's some really, really sweet reasons that this is important. Because when we're talking about shepherds, we're talking about shepherds in the Middle East. And a shepherd in the Middle East didn't have rolling green fields, they had dirt and they had rocks and they had a lot of work in front of them. If they were going to be a shepherd who could present their sheep with green pastures. So today we're going to kind of repaint the picture of what we see when we think of a shepherd. And as we repaint that picture, we're going to talk about how Jesus not only satisfies those things, but reconciles everything about this occupation in his culture and in ours. So if you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. Real quick, stand for me. We're going to read through this, and I'll let you sit back down for a good long while, I promise, all right? John chapter 10, verses 22 to 33. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered him. I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. You guys can have a seat. Okay. So right from the beginning, we, gotta, we have something that's kind of mentioned here that's a little bit unique. All right, we see, we see the Feast of Dedication. Do you notice that? Right at the beginning of verse 22, it says that as he's coming into town, at that time the Feast of Dedication was taking place. Now the Feast of Dedication was, was what we know of as Hanukkah. Okay? The Feast of Dedication was Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, this Feast of Dedication was, it was kind of unique because it, it was a time where illumination and lights were kind of the name of the game. Y'all seen, seen a menorah with the eight different candles that would be lit. This is because just before Jesus shows up on the scene, there was a, a man that ended up having a story written about him called the Maccabees. It's in, um, in the apocryphal writings uh, on your Catholic Bible, if you've got one of those. And it's a really neat kind of historical study. Uh, we can talk more in more detail later on if you want to talk about why that's not canonical in the Bible that we use. But this, this Maccabean revolt that happened in the second century B.C. was this amazing story of a God, again, kind of protecting his people and using this man, um, elevated him to kind of lead a revolt. And because of that, there was, there was something that wild that happened in the middle of this revolt that they needed to, he needed light. And he only had a little bit of oil. He had enough oil to keep a lamp lit for one day, and it lasted for eight. So because of that, they made this thing called a menorah with eight different lights. And during this feast of dedication, during this Hanukkah celebration, some people call it the Feast of Illumination. During that time, they would light these eight candles, one for every day of the feast. And it was a time when it was everything was supposed to be illuminated, not just in the sense that, okay, it's well lit when it's nighttime and you keep your candles lit, but everything about your attitude, your heart, your, like everything about your perspective in life was supposed to be illuminated. If someone passed away during this time, you weren't allowed to mourn publicly. You weren't allowed to mourn in public. This was a time when rejoicing was insisted upon for eight days. That's what this feast of dedication was. And that's when Jesus walks in. In the middle of intentional celebration. It says he walks into a place called Solomon's Colonnade. That's just a cool place because it's like a big community gathering spot. I don't know. Uh, who, who in here grew up in small towns? Anybody small town people? All right. Well, I grew up in like a pretty big urban environment in Jacksonville, Florida. And then I moved to Kentucky when I was 15, which was a little different because I moved to Nicholasville. All right. Woo. Yeah. Jessamine County. Hey, come out. Hey, holla. Jessamine County, there were two places to hang out in high school. There was Tractor Supply, all right? That was if you were really redneck. If you were super urban and trendy, you hung out at Walmart. <laughs> Not only did I hang out there, I worked there. I was that trendy. That's right. All right, so that's where you hung out when you were in Nicholasville. Now, if you were in Jerusalem and you were going to hang out, there was a place where people would just kind of gather. It was Solomon's Colonnade. This becomes important in the book of Acts later on. If you read on in the story of Acts, what's going to happen in Solomon's colonnade is it's going to be taken over by the saints. 
This is going to become the place where ecclesia, the gathered ones, begin to gather. The early church, when, when there are just so many people coming to Christ at once, they would gather in Solomon's colonnade. And this became a space that was used in early church gatherings. Just thought that was kind of a cool, a cool little aside. But now, now we want to talk about shepherding again. As we say in here, this, this whole passage in John chapter 10, Jesus gives himself a name. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd takes care of my sheep. Says he's the gate to the sheep, the door. He uses all these different references. There were references to things that a lot of them that Justin got to talk about last week as he walked us into what it looks like to be a sheep of a good shepherd. Now, when we talk about a good shepherd, I want you to know a few things that a shepherd would do. And it's the reason I wanted to repaint the picture of shepherding is because if I'm seeing a field full of green grass and there's a fence around and the sheep just stay in the fence and they eat from the grass that's always growing and the shepherd just hangs out under a tree and naps all day, then I have an, a very, very poor understanding of who God wants me to see him as when he introduces himself as the good shepherd. But if all of a sudden... If I have a right picture and a right understanding and I see a field where I cannot find one blade of grass the whole time I look out at it, and all I see is rocks and dirt and sand, and all I see are potential hazards for sheep, and all I see is a place that seems like, like a perfect place for parasites and bugs to fester and to grow that would attack sheep, then I begin to have a more accurate understanding of what it is that the Bible is talking about when it says that our good shepherd leads us because what Jesus is leading us into and what a shepherd in that time in human history would have been leading his sheep into I mean, guys it was nothing but potential for hazard and if you're going to be a shepherd who led your sheep in a green pasture then it took work because a shepherd wasn't just a shepherd he also became a gardener all right what would have to happen is if you were going to have green grass in the middle of a desert, you had to have irrigation. You had to have someone to protect that ground from being, um, from being attacked by other animals. It took a lot of work, a lot of care, and a lot of love from someone to be able to grow green grass in the middle of a desert. So when we see the 23rd Psalm, we say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Guys, this is who Jesus is to us. He's saying, I recognize that as much as we wish that the Christian life looked a lot more like Ireland, it doesn't. It tends to look a lot more like the Middle East. And it tends to be a land full of hazards full of potential for anything but being well-fed and well-rested and well-taken care of. And that's exactly what he wants to walk us into. So he walks us into this desert land. And he says, now here's the thing. The only way it's ever going to be safe for a sheep to walk into that desert land is if the shepherd went there first. So the shepherd goes before the sheep. And he takes away any of the plants that would be poisonous. He takes away all the things that would be hazards for the sheep. He takes a piece of land and he begins to prepare it, to protect it, preserve it, so that he can let things grow in it. 
so that his sheep can be sustained and they can eat. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So the main lesson that we need to learn is that Jesus is our gardener. By being our shepherd, he is saying, I am preparing a place for you. I'm making sure to go before you into the desert lands. And I'm going to ensure that there is enough grass there for you to eat. Green pastures don't happen on accident. The second thing, that he is a provider. Here's something that we need to know. Like a sheep who lacks, no one, when there's a sheep that lacks, no one blames the sheep. Another thing we need to understand, like sometimes when I think of sheep, I think of like, oh, sweet, furry, cuddly things. You know, oh, it's nice. But guys, like a sheep is the most offensive association you can possibly give to a person in the Word of God. When you say, when he says to the people, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and is implying, you're my sheep, that's not a compliment. Okay, this is not something that we should hear and be like, oh, stop, Jesus, you shouldn't have. No, this is like, he's being highly offensive. He's saying, hey, you're a sheep. In other words, hey, you're really dumb. Hey, you know what you can do for yourself? Not a dang thing. Nothing. You got nothing. You're going to be able to eat? Not by yourself. You're not. Sheep can do nothing on their own. A sheep who is alone is a dead sheep. That is the scriptural understanding. Now, that sounds a little extreme and excessive, but that's the understanding in the Word of God. A sheep without a shepherd is a dead sheep. What he's saying is, what he's saying is, hey, if you're a sheep on your own, you're going to lack. You're not going to be well fed. You're not going to be well taken care of. You're not going to be preserved. There's never been one sheep in all of human history who has set up an irrigation system and grown crops. Never. It's not happened yet. Now, maybe in the future, with all kinds of technological developments, this could be attainable. But right now, there are no sheep that grow green grass. Sheep without a shepherd are helpless. And that's the point. And there needs to be, as we talk about everything the Good Shepherd does for us, there is an associated offense that's supposed to be there. That we have to kind of wrap our minds around this. That we have to admit. And it's what we keep coming back to in the stories in John. It's what we keep coming back to. We've said this over and over again. And even as I was going through this lesson today, I thought, Lord, there's so many things I'm just going to have to repeat. Maybe I should just skip past those. And I realized... I mean, if the Bible is repeating things over and over and over again, it's because he knows our hearts need to hear it over and over and over again. We see the Pharisees. We see the religious leaders of the day. Everything that Jesus tries to say to them about his goodness, they take offensively. And it's those of us who hear the offense in it and say, Lord, you're right. That's a sheep. And when he says, I'm the good shepherd, he's saying to the people that are his flock, he's saying, hey, you're helpless. You're hopeless. You're dumb. You got no shot at making it without me. And his flock, they don't hear that and say, how dare you? His sheep, they hear his voice and they say, Lord, you're right. I'm helpless. 
Praise God, I've got a good shepherd to be my helper. And this is what the Pharisees miss over and over again. It's what the religious leaders miss. It's what most of the Jewish people miss, and it's what they're going to miss in this story again. It's what they're going to miss again. That he's saying, you don't realize all you have to do. All you have to do is admit, I've got no shot without you, Lord. Recently, I've been, as I've been singing to the Lord, a lot of times I can kind of track like some of the things that he's doing in my heart based on the things that I sing to him like in my private prayer life. And, and I love that. And I love being able to just kind of sit and take an assessment of what I've sung to him and like what I know that he's doing in here. And lately, one of the primary things that I've been singing to him is like, Lord, like all of me is far too small to give compared to all you gave. Like for me to offer my life to God and say, God, I want to bring you this sacrifice of my life. Do you realize the only logical response to God the Father being offered my life is, ugh. How dare you bring that offensive offering before me? Now, guys, if you hear that and you think, mm, I don't like that, that's the same thing the people in these stories said. And sometimes my heart still does that, honestly. I mean, really, when I go to the Lord, it's like, gosh, I have, I have nothing to give, and I want to have something to offer. I want to bring my strengths and my gifts, and every time I do, I realize, oh, wait, Lord, the only strength I've got is my joy, or is your joy in me being my strength. When I want to bring my talents and say, Lord, I'm going to offer my talents, I realize, wait, Lord, every talent, gift, and ability I've ever had was borrowed from you. It is nothing more than a response to the work of your spirit in my life. Guys, we have nothing, nothing to offer in this is the most beautiful lesson a sheep can ever learn. Because if I admit that I have nothing, that means the only shot I've got is having a good shepherd. Shepherd is a provider. He's also a protector. Now, a good shepherd will protect from two things. He will protect the sheep from terrors from without, and he will protect the sheep from himself. When he says, my rod, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's what David says to the Lord in Psalm 23 in his, in his famous prayer. There's a reason that there are two things. I'm going to talk about it for a second because it's a really unique lesson. And some of it's a little bit uncomfortable. I'm going to kind of warn you, all right? On the front end, this is a little bit weird. This is kind of a... This is something about the way, the way that you have to view the Lord as a shepherd when you understand this concept is going to be a little abrasive to your heart at the beginning, I can promise you. Because there are two things. There's a rod. And the rod is what you would expect. It's the thing that like, he uses to pull the sheep back in when they wander. Because when sheep wander, it's not just, oh, that they wander off and can't be found. It's if they get into the wrong area... They will get like, they can get so many brambles and thorns on them that a sheep will then roll over and they get stuck. Okay? And when sheep roll over and are on their backs, they have no ability to get themselves back up again. Circulation will stop and they will die quickly. So when they wander off, it's not just, oh, silly sheep, go into the bushes again. No, it's like, no, for real, if you're gone for five minutes, you might die. Sheep are helpless helpless creatures. So there's the staff that he uses to pull us back, but there's also the rod. 
Now, the rod's weird. The rod would have been a small, a small little stick about like this, all right? And it would have been this tiny stick that was very, very um, compact wood. So it would have been the heaviest stick they could possibly find. For us, you know, we'd probably think something more like, like a little barbell. I don't know if anybody's, uh, has anybody ever done a spin class with the little bars? The little bars in them? Okay, just one of us? Good. Should probably keep it that way. They're miserable and very humiliating for me athletically. I always go with my wife, and she just crushes me at these things. And so you go, and they've got this little bar. And the first time I picked it up, it's like four pounds. And you're like sitting there on the spin bike, you know, doing this. That's right. I actually bob my head while I do it. Don't judge. Okay? And so I'm sitting there like doing this. And then they're like, okay, now get the bar out. And you pull it out. And the first time I did, I thought, <laughs> cute little bar. And then five minutes later, I can like barely hold it up, you know? But it's a small little bar that's really, really, really heavy. Every shepherd would have had a rod. And the rod was used to protect in the sense that they would throw it, throw it at animals that would come to try to, try to scare them. Sometimes maybe just throw it by a sheep as if to warn them, hey, you're getting too far away. But sometimes the rod was used to discipline and sometimes the shepherd would use this rod to inflict a wound on the sheep. And when they would take this rod and they would hit the sheep and they would wound it, the sheep would be unable to walk. And a shepherd would at that point go to the sheep. This is a sheep who had continuously walked away over and over and over again. And the shepherd knew, unless I do something drastic, this sheep doesn't realize it. But the sheep is suicidal without knowing it. And he would wound the sheep. And he would take the sheep and he would put it up over his shoulders. Because it was unable to walk. And he would bandage its wounds. And as it sat on his shoulders, the sheep that was prone to wander would realize and would learn one simple lesson. that's going to be the most important lesson a sheep can ever learn. It is I'm safe with the shepherd. Now, that's strange for us, guys. That, I mean, he would use the rod to break a sheep's legs is what the rod was used for. And he's saying to us, hey, I, I know that's your tendency. But Hebrews 12 lets us know the one the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son that he receives. If you endure discipline, God is dealing with you as a son. What son is there that a father doesn't discipline? Hebrews chapter 12, that's and guys, this lesson is so unique because I think, what a God who would break my legs. And then I realize, wait, the further I get, the further I get, the more likely I get to die. And he loves us so much that he would break our legs to teach us dependence. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this concept of a God who is also a disciplinarian, because I know it kind of, like when I first heard this lesson, it was like, made me uncomfortable. You know what I mean? I'm like, nah, nah, nah. I don't know if I got room. I don't know if I got room for that lesson within my understanding of the personality of my good shepherd. And I realized that that's fine. I just can't say that my good shepherd is the good shepherd of the Bible. Because the good shepherd... The good shepherd loves his sheep so much that he will do anything to protect them and to keep them close. The good shepherd is also the keeper. He's the keeper of the sheep. One of the great 
One of the great moments in this passage, that John 10 is right there at the end of what Jesus says to these, uh, to these religious people, to these Jews that have gathered around them at the Feast of Dedication. When it says that they surround him, it doesn't mean that they've come to ask him to inquire like, hey, we want to know more about you. The word surround, half of the times that that word in John 10 is used in the Bible, it's used as an army surrounding the people it's going to do battle with. So these Jewish people have gathered around to try to catch Jesus in the act again. Like we want to get him to say heresy out loud so we can kill him for it. That's what they're hoping for. And he says, he says to them like, Hey, you don't, you don't understand because you're not my sheep. That's why you don't get it. You, you don't get it because you're not my sheep. And then at the end, he says, I and the Father are one. And that, right before he says that, he says something really cool about his Father. That after we get to the end, we realize he's saying about himself too. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, this kind of gets us into into a lesson that gets into some theology that's really important. It's, a, it's an important thing to understand about how God views you and what, how unconditional is his love and how permanent is the work of salvation that he has done in your heart if you're a believer and someone who loves God. Because a lot of times, and I've had this debate for years, and I'll probably keep on having it, and it's something that I, even some people that I love and I respect that know the Word of God a lot more, a lot more intensely, a lot more deeply than I do, they will differ with me on this. But when I read John 10 and I see this, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Guys, I'm comforted because I realize that me staying close to God is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon the ability of my Father to keep me. And this is huge. Because if, if my ability to stay connected to the Father is contingent upon me, I'm in a world of hurt because everything that I already know about being a sheep tells me that I'm not going to have the ability to stay. Everything that we're told, everything that we know about sheep would make that the worst news in the world if everything about me staying close to the shepherd was dependent upon me. Me staying close to the shepherd is dependent upon the shepherd. It's the best news in all the world. And when people say, man, I think... I think you can be snatched. I think you can run away from God. I think you can lose your salvation. These statements that all end up kind of saying the same thing. What's really being said there is the Father's not actually good enough at being a shepherd to keep you. Now, am I saying people can't walk away? No, I'm saying that when people walk away, what they are doing is they're clarifying the fact that they were not sheep. A sheep never gets away from the good shepherd. Goats, they might get away. Wolves wearing sheep's clothes, they can get away. Sheep don't get away. Sheep stay because the shepherd's that good. The last thing is he's sovereign. We see this one of my favorite verses in the Bible is the very last verse in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the versions, it's one we're going to actually read here at the conclusion in a second, but it, it says, surely goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. I love that. I almost have this image of like, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I have this image of like when I'm walking someplace, it's like I look over and behind a tree, goodness and mercy, you're still just sitting there like poking behind a tree. 
Like, oh, yeah, yeah. we're We're still still here here. stalking you all the days of your life. You know, and it's like, what a glorious stalker. Goodness, mercy. And that's what he's saying, like, my unfailing love. When you walk into a room, every time you walk in there, you'll be like, here he is again, unfailing love. Got here first. Every time I get to a new place, oh, there it is. Goodness, mercy, waiting on me. All the days of my life, goodness and mercy. Because the shepherd is that good. These lessons, these lessons are meant to do two things. One, they're meant to exalt the good shepherd. And two, they're meant to let the sheep know how much they need the good shepherd. Who are the sheep? They're helpless. They're dumb. They're incapable of lying down without a shepherd. They're perpetually forgetful of his provision in the past. They're unable to protect themselves from threats or pests. They're irritable. They're wandering. They're desperately needy. Sheep have one talent. Sheep have one ability. Sheep have one reconciling purpose in all of their lives. They know their shepherd's voice. That's it. It's the one talent that we got. Your ability to... Whatever it is like that's your spiritual gifting, that's great and that's beautiful. That's apart from God. Your one real talent is that you know your shepherd's voice. When sheep from all different folds would kind of come into a more urban environment, I said it was wild because good sheep, when a shepherd, it didn't matter how loud all the other shepherds were. It didn't matter how much noise was going on in the marketplace. When a good shepherd would stand up and he would say, here's sheep. All of the sheep would come running. They knew their shepherd's voice so well they could distinguish it from all the voices that weren't the shepherd. They knew when they were hearing a fake shepherd. They knew when they were just hearing a whole, whole lot of ruckus. And they could hear the shepherd's voice through it all. And that's what he's talking about here in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Cool thing about this to me is that for us today, like we're, we're in this room. Now that might seem like a simple thing. That might seem like a really, really simple act that you, you got up on a Sunday, you walked into a weird octagon shaped building and room, you know, and you came to hang out with a community of people. Because what that, what that tells me about you is that, that there's every likelihood that you are a person that God is doing something in your life and heart to woo you. And for many of you, you know Jesus. You've walked with him for a long time. You've loved him with all your heart. And you're just walking into what it means to know his voice better. To admit your helplessness. And to confess that the only hope and the only shot you've got is leaning on your good shepherd. But for some of you in here, you might be wondering, like, man, am I a sheep? And guys, that's the most important question we're ever going to ask. Am I a sheep? But I I would let you know this, that like, because you're in this room, it it gives me a hope for you that that you're someone that hears the shepherd's voice. That you're someone that the Lord is doing a work in your heart. That he's drawing you closer and closer and closer to himself. Now, there's a substantial moment where where we walk from death to life. You know, we we might think of this in, in church terms as like the moment of salvation. But salvation, we've talked about this before in here, that salvation is something, when Scripture talks about salvation, it doesn't just talk about a one-time event. 
It's something Paul says this term, being saved. And he later on says the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So for us, we think of salvation as like this moment when like maybe I, you know, I came down to the front during an altar call or during an event. Or maybe in a moment of like, man, just deep hurt and woundedness, the Lord met me sovereignly and invited me reminded me that he loved me, that he died for me, and I became a sheep. Maybe you walked through this over a long period of time with somebody that was close to you that loved you enough to tell you about the goodness of your good shepherd. But regardless of what that moment was like for you, we are all, we are all in this process of being saved. And now here's the cool thing about that. Now when I say, when I say all, I do not mean all people on earth. I mean, all of those who've heard the shepherd's voice. So if you're in here today, I'm trusting, I'm trusting that you're in one of two categories. Either you're somebody that the Lord is drawing to himself and you're beginning to hear his voice and you just want to know what it means to say yes to him. Or you're somebody who's being saved. You're somebody that like you've been hearing the voice of God for a long time and you're learning what it means to give him an unconditional yes just like he's given you his unconditional love. It says in there, they do not believe because they're not among his sheep. I want to take note of this. It does not say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. It says you don't believe because you're not my sheep. And that's, imp that's important and that's purposeful. He's not saying, oh man, okay, this is what you got to do. You've got to figure out how to believe and mean it deep in your heart. No. This is a work that God does in you. It's not something that you do in yourself. And that's the most beautiful part about being a sheep. It's admitting, I've got nothing. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I'm dumb. I can't fend for myself. I can't feed myself. I can do nothing without my shepherd, including including salvation. He says, I want to give them eternal life. I told you it feels like there's some things that we just kind of had to repeat. One of those is, again, like over and over again, we see the Jews trying to get into a place where they're going to kill him, and finally they do it. He says a blasphemous thing, and they pick up rocks, and Jesus says something, and again, he sneaks out in the middle of it. But one of the other things that we see here is this mention of eternal life. I've told you about this before, but even as I was praying through this, I thought, Lord, if you mention it multiple times, it must be because you know that some of us in this room are prone to forget the beauty of what eternal life really means. I told you this before, but eternal life is this phrase in the Greek. It's um, zoe ionios. Zoe ionios. Look it up later. It's really cool if you just look up online. Eternal life, what's it mean in the Greek? You can find these definitions and stuff. But guys, I love, I love this phrase. Because my whole life, I thought eternal life was a measurement of time. I heard eternal and I thought length of time. I thought, okay, eternal life means I get to a million years and then it's another million, another. And like, I don't know if anybody was like this as a kid, but I would sit in my bed and try to think of eternity until it just hurt. You know, you're like, ah, and then you can't sleep. You're like, this is so weird. And I always thought, oh man, eternal means forever and ever. And it does include that kind of meaning. But eternal life that he's talking about, when he says, God so loved the world, he gives his only begotten son that whoever believes in will not perish, but have eternal life. And when he talks in here, in John 10, about how his sheep are offered eternal life, it means something a little bit deeper than that. 
Zoe Ionios means this. It means literally, I get to experience the quality of God's life right now as a present possession. That's what the word means. That is copied and pasted, okay, from the definition under the Greek words. It means that you and I have not just been invited, not just been invited to salvation, not just been invited to say, oh, I hear God's voice. It's not just, okay, I can live forever and my life never has to end. It's right now. Not the moment you die and you enter eternity. Not like the moment that you finally kind of figure out that one big lesson that you wish you could figure out in Christianity. Not the time that you finally feel like you can lay that one idol down that's always had a hold and a grip on your heart. That what eternal life is right now, beginning to share the quality of life that God is now enjoying in glory right now. That's good news. And when you hear the shepherd's voice, what he's inviting you into on the other side of admitting your helplessness and your hopelessness is not just, oh, you're a good shepherd and I don't have to go to hell when I die. No, no, no. Because he wants to save us from our sin, but he wants to do much more than that. He wants to save you into looking like his son. The more you fall in love with a good shepherd, the more you're going to find yourself looking like him. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows, leads me in beside peaceful streams, renews my strength, he guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you're close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely, goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I'll live in the house of the Lord forever.